Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So Captain Red McDaniel was flying raids over Vietnam when he was shot down and he ended up in the notorious prison known as the Hanoi Hilton where he endured long sessions of torture and even longer stints in solitary confinement. Now, having barely survived the ordeal, Captain Red told of one of the key experiences that helped him and many, many others survive. It's called the TAP Code. And some of you have heard about this. I had never heard about this before. See, apparently, the way that the the prisoners of war would communicate with each other in these solitary confinement cells is by tapping out a code to represent different letters of the alphabet, letter by letter, communicating, how are you, hope you're having a good day, make sure if if you're being interrogated, you don't say this, I mean, this is what they asked me. And they would communicate all day long using the tap code. And many of the prisoners of war would come back and say, if it hadn't been for that, those communications, I never would have made it. In fact, they even noted that if a POW couldn't learn the tap code within 30 days, they would begin to see them turn inward and start to deteriorate and sort of get a little bit uh, listless, stop eating, and some would even just give up the will to live. Now, maybe I shouldn't be using an example of a wartime POW when talking about being stuck in your marriage. (laughs) And some of you might be like, yes, that's what we're talking about. That's how I'm stuck. But here we go anyway. So anyway, marriage can be a lonely place. It's an experience for people who expect closeness, expect proximity, expect relationship. But the oppression of isolation comes from emotional distance. A lack of communication can be punishing. Now, this whole series, we're talking about all sorts of ways we get stuck. And uh, last week, we, we were talking about stuck in marriage, and I had so much more I wanted to cover. We decided to split that topic in two. But uh, we're wrapping up the stuck in marriage uh, topic today. We'll be moving on to a different topic next week. But what we wanted to do was 
consider two other ways that we get stuck in our marriages. First is that we get stuck through neglect. Stuck through neglect. Imagine yourself walking with your spouse on the ridge of a mountain, and it's very steep. And as you, you walk along this ridge, it takes great effort to stay up on the top of the ridge together. And without effort, you begin to drift downward on your respective sides of the mountain until eventually you can't see each other or even hear each other anymore. Without the effort to continue walking up toward the peak, you will drift away from each other. And the majority of marriages that we work with, even those that come in with big problems, the majority of them are in trouble today because of years of neglect. And most often, couples can't even identify when they began neglecting the relationship. Some don't even know they are doing it because they haven't actually learned any other way of relating. Maybe it's what they saw growing up. Maybe it's just the best that they thought they could muster. But there's no more time for the marriage itself. There are no dates. There are no conversations about anything that isn't very pragmatic about life. There's no wasted time just being together. There's little sort of just hanging out, little companionship, and slim pickings on intimacy. Did you know that there are some couples that will go an entire week without any sort of intimacy? No physical intimacy? A week? I know some of you are like, that's not possible. I'm telling you, the statistics don't lie. I find this unbelievably disturbing. But it is true. You also get stuck in resentment. Stuck in resentment. So here's a hard truth about adulting. Everyone will disappoint you. Everyone. Now, if that's the first time you're hearing that, I'm sorry, I'm just dropping it like a bomb on you. But the truth of the matter is, you will not always get your way. I know, that's so hard to hear. But you will not always get your way. Because of that, you have to start to ask yourself, wait, if I'm now disappointed, what am I going to do with that disappointment? How do I process and deal with the pain? Because it's inevitable. See, resentment is caused by unresolved pain. And it usually builds over time, and sometimes it is just barely noticeable. But slowly, layer by layer, it sort of presses down on your problems, and it adds weight and complexity to them. And it could be anger, it could be sadness. Your walls of resentment that you build, they, they could come in one giant slab of heartache that just hits your marriage. Or they can be built very slowly, brick by brick by brick, with a little resentment here and a little bit of frustration and anger here. And you might not even realize that resentment is building. There are some telltale signs, though. Maybe you sort of feel yourself starting to hold a grudge against your spouse. 
Or maybe you're using some sort of passive, aggressive sorts of things. You could also have just sort of a low-grade irritation, or you can get, start getting snippy or even outright naggy. You also could, you know, you, there's a whole lot of like nonverbals, right? There's the whole like uh, eye rolling and the snorting and the huffing. The <laughs> like there's all of that like stuff we do, right? There's like a conflict. It's like, ah. <laughs> it's like, you know, a good sign. Sarcasm. If you find yourself recycling your old anger over and over and over again, if you keep taking it out and revisiting it without resolution, you might be dealing with resentment. Maybe you continue to dwell on how they have upset you. And I'm not just talking about remembering it in a flash or a moment. I'm talking about sort of savoring it all over again, reliving the hurt and the pain and the anger or the betrayal or the frustration Maybe you're starting to find yourself taking like great offense at minor issues. That's a great indicator that resentment is starting to build. And resentment leads to less warmth in the relationship. It's less affection. It's, it leads to withdrawal. People start to put distance between them and the other person. And there are lots of ways to get stuck in resentment. You could be neglecting your spouse for the job or for the kids, or you know, maybe if the relationship is unbalanced, you know, you've got one person who is sort of the primary giver in the relationship, and the other one is sort of always taking. The giver can start to have their resentment build. Maybe it's unilateral decision-making. I just made the decision. Shouldn't we have talked about it? No. No, it's a great way to build resentment in the person, not being allowed to participate. Maybe you're treating your spouse like a child. You know, no one likes to be, no adults want to be managed by their spouse. Leave that for the kids. Or maybe you've got some sort of habitual, self-centered behavior, right? You come home and you plop yourself down in front of the TV while there are still tasks to do. Or the opposite, maybe you refuse to plop yourself down and spend some time in the relationship because you're obsessed with all the tasks. You see, you could, the resentment could build for either partner in either direction, even both at the same time. Maybe you're forgetting or you're not making a big enough deal over special days, you know, like birthdays or anniversaries. And I'm trying not to like make eye contact because I know a few of you have mess this one up, and so I don't want to like, no, I'm sorry, I shouldn't even like, I shouldn't even do that, but it happens. Trying to change your spouse, not letting them be the parent that they want to be, got to do it my way. Or maybe you try to, you're seeking like fast and cheap forgiveness, right? Something happens, and what do you do? You're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let's just move on. Well, we can't move on because I don't actually believe that you're sorry yet. <laughs> but I said I'm sorry. Can't we just drop it? Why are you always throwing these things back in my face? I said I was sorry. You said it a little too quickly. Didn't quite, I'm not quite buying in because we go through this over and over. Maybe you're talking trash about them and they find out or in fact you're doing it in front of them. 
could be unfulfilled dreams. You had these hopes. This, it was going to be the money. It was going to be the career. It was going to be family. Why didn't you give these to me? It's not showing appreciation or using sex as a weapon or any multitude of ways that resentment can build. So how do we get our marriages unstuck from resentment and neglect? Open up, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 1, Colossians chapter 3, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the city of Colossae in modern-day Turkey. It was sort of an average little town, and they got this awesome privilege of having a letter uh, from the Apostles handed down to us through them. And in this letter, Paul is continually trying to show how it is that a focus on Christ will change the way you act and react in the world. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So as followers of Christ, we have experienced a type of death. He tells us that we're now dead to the ways of the world and that we are alive to the new heavenly realities. And in that, that sort of death that he talks about in verse 3, there's also the promise in verse 4 of a new type of life. We get to experience the resurrected life now and we're promised it in its fullness in the future. Then he says, set your hearts in verse 1 or set your minds in verse 2. He's saying, listen, what you need to do is you want to reorient all of your cognitive, all of your heart focus. You want to reorient your life around heavenly realities. One scholar said you have to deliberately and daily commit ourselves to the values of the heavenly kingdom and live out those values. See, and if your old life is dead and your new life is now yours in Christ, then it can be the same thing in your marriage. You see, you are now being made into a new creature, which means the old things are passing, new things are being developed, and this can have a significant impact in your marriage. Do you believe that your marriage can experience this new life in Christ? Because it can, but only if you walk the road. See, the key kingdom value that Paul is developing here is to put Christ at the center of everything you do and everything you think and everything you are. And in that, we will begin to experience a new life in Christ. So I, I kind of want to, we, I was in my D group and uh, we were kind of talking about this idea a little bit and we, I kind of sorted that we developed this idea and I wanted to kind of share it with, with you guys as well. So we have what, you know, this container represents, of course, self. It's you, right? And so there you are. Uh, you're on both sides of it, actually. So there it is. And, and this, 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 is, this is you, right? And so how you relate 
to the world around you is based on what this is. So who, whatever this is, who you are, your soul, let's call it, how you relate is in a very sort of directional and intentional way, whether you want to or not, because it's who you are. The self relates to your marriage. It relates to society. It relates to you know, your church family. And it's always seeking something from these relationships. And this is, this is you know, and, and you, you just press in on these things, right? And so what we usually do is we usually think about, like, you know, you've got your relationship to your family, you've got your relationship to your church family or to your job or whatever it might be. And how you relate to your family is now the same thing you do in your relationship to God. You say, he's just one more of the relationships that I need to have in my life. And so he just, he just joins a long list. Here's the problem. The self is remarkably clumsy. The self can't actually see outside of itself really well. And so what it does is it's sort of like a bull in a china closet, kind of stumbles into these relationships. But the self is always doing it in a way that is self-interested, self-seeking. So you approach everything and what you can get out of it or how it makes you feel. And so you approach society and all of a sudden you're having all of these political fights because you're rushing towards society to see what you can get out of it. But because you're, you're, you're clumsy, you end up like bumping into things, right? You're, and this is what happens with the self. And you see it. So you, you've got a church family and you really love those relationships. In fact, you want something out of them. And the self sort of starts bumping in to all of these different areas of life. I mean, can we agree that, that humanity is remarkably self-centered? So I, I, uh, so I uh, read a story. It was uh, out of Australia. There was a, a bride, and she had, uh, she had her, her bridesmaids, and her sisters were her bridesmaids, all right? So it's like, kind of like really connected. So her sisters were her bridesmaids, but they were all living together before her wedding. And she came up with a wonderful plan. They all, of course, wanted to lose weight for the wedding. And so she concocted this amazing plan where she was going to make diet drinks every morning, meal replacement drinks every morning that all of them would have so they could all lose weight. But they were really struggling. The sisters were really struggling to lose weight. And that's when they found out that they weren't diet meal replacement drinks. They were the most fattening smoothies that she could concoct. And she told them, and the reason she did it is because she wanted her sisters to get bigger while she got smaller so she could be the thinnest of the sisters at her wedding. <laughs> we're a self-centered people. Some of you are like, that's not a bad idea. You see, that's what I'm talking about. That's what we do. We're a self-centered people. And we end up bumping and we end up pushing. And you know what's even worse is, is because people start to move away from us because we're sort of like a bull in a china closet, now we get a running start to get what we want from them. And so now we kind of rush into things with a crazy aggression. But you see, the true self isn't an enclosed entity. The true self is a container. Right? It's not, it's not solid. 
And the way I like to envision the soul is as a container. And what the scriptures are trying to constantly tell us to do is all of the garbage that's in you needs to be taken out. So your self-centeredness has to come out and your self-will and, and all of this kind of like what's in it for me. And so, you know, this is like my old sermon notes. So this is like very apropos actually uh, of trying to rid yourself of self. And now what ends up taking place is now you have a, a container that was designed to hold your ultimate love. And that's how the soul was meant to function. And when it's filled with self, it goes in all of these terrible and destruction, destructive directions. But you see, God isn't one more thing to relate to. He's actually supposed to be in you. And this relationship isn't actually something that is supposed to be one more thing that you need to manage. It manages you. And so you fill yourself. Look at Colossians 3, verse 11. It says, Christ in you. That's the promise. That's our hope of glory. It's Christ in you. And now he will actually fuel the rest of these relationships, which is so beautiful now because now as you begin to approach all of these relationships, instead of you being all about what's in it for you, you begin to think of the other because now you're God-centered. And so now how you relate to your family is how God wants you to relate to your family. And how you relate to your work and the meaning and the value you get out of your work is now related to it. And so what ends up happening is you begin to see your circle draw in. And so what you hoped for, what you needed and what you wanted, it starts, to, it starts to pull in around you into this tighter circle. And here's the beauty. When they're being pulled into you because you're no longer trying to get what you want out of it, but you're trying to get what they need out of it, all of a sudden they start pulling in. But they're not really drawing close to you, are they? You're the container that is, the, that is receiving the benefit of the proximity. But as they draw close to you, they're actually drawing closer to God, which means the container actually fulfills its purpose, its meaning, which is to bring the glory and the majesty of God to the people who most need it. And then you get the benefit of all of the proximity starting to come in, to draw in around you. There was a quote, Miroslav Volf, he said, directed completely away from itself toward God. So when you're able to do that, you're direct, you know, get yourself, get away from yourself. The self will find itself host to the source and goal of all being. So you're no longer like a bull in a china closet. Uh, china closet. The, the circle starts moving in and all of a sudden this, this container of your soul now finds what it was made for. And I love that way he phrases it, the source and goal of all being. Now you're no longer rushing in, you're no longer clamoring, you're no longer clinging to these relationships because you have found contentment in Christ. So once you have Christ at the center, then we start to kill the old patterns, the vices that damage our marriage. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. But now you must also, verse 8, jump to verse 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, 
anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Listen, these apply to all relationships, but imagine the power that these have in your marriage. If you did these things in your marriage, you know what it would mean? It means less opportunity for resentment to build. These are the very things that cause resentment. Then you add on top of that. You, so you, you put those, you kill those old patterns, and then you add the Christian virtues on top of it. And this breathes new life and vitality into our marriages. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Marriages will get positively better with each new day that these virtues are practiced. It will. You know, you're way down the, the resentment road. You want to know your way back from resentment? Forgiveness. Yes, but I can't do it. How do I do forgiveness? Well, you do it in the same way that Christ did it for you. You use that reality, how you have disappointed, how you have frustrated, how you have let him down, and how he continues to offer you forgiveness and grace and love. That's how followers of Christ do it. And so we offer forgiveness. You're worried about neglecting your marriage. You kind of see it going stale. Practice these virtues. This will help you prevent neglect. So what do you want from your marriage? Are you building toward that end? You guys might remember this picture from October. This is the sandcastle. Hurricane Michael had come barreling in, the fourth strongest hurricane to make landfall in the continental U.S. It was the strongest on record to hit the Florida panhandle. High-end category four Peak winds of 155 miles per hour as it made landfall near Mexico Beach, Florida. That's a picture of the devastation at Mexico Beach. 60 plus deaths, 14 and a half billion in damages, terrible storm surge that just wiped out many homes and businesses, except that one. Pretty incredible. Russell King and his nephew, LeBron, they built this house. They called it the Sandcastle. And they said they wanted a house that would last for generations. That was their, their motive. They got rid of, they just ignored the normal building code. And they go, I don't want to build to their hurricane standards. I want a house that would sustain itself against 250 mile an hour winds. So they overbuilt everything. They put in the time, the energy, and the planning to overbuild this house. They had 30-foot pylons driven in with 10 feet above the ground for 40 feet total to make sure they were above the storm surge. The house was the only surviving beachfront house on the block. It sustained only minor damage. So can you say that about your marriage? Are you building a marriage that can outlast whatever this world throws at it? Are you willing to put in the time and the effort and the planning to make certain it stands the test of time? So here's your assignment. Yep, you have homework. 
Somebody left the first service. They said, I'm going to find a new church for the next four months. I'll come back in four months. That's what they said. They don't do homework. So here's your assignment. Go on a date, say two to four times in a month. Maybe, maybe three, four times a month. Here it is. It's one to two hours. It's just the two of you. There's no talk about your issues or problems or fighting. It's just time together. And you're going to spend that time building the sort of positive, unconditional regard, the ballast that you will need to have the more significant conversations. And that happens at the State of the Union. The State of the Union is going to be the meeting that happens one time a month for the next four months, so you will have four of these under your belt if you pick up this challenge. So here is the State of the Union meeting. Ready? If you're a note taker, you're going to want to jot these down, or you can take a picture when I get all of the, uh, the parts up. The goal here is to talk about the marriage, and you're going to ask first, is do you feel like Christ is the center of our marriage? You're going to ask that very question. And remember, what you're doing here is talking about the marriage. That's the goal. We're going to learn to communicate. And you might say, hey, listen, that's not kind of my bent, right? Because it's like the culture that I came from, my family, my background, my what, whatever. We, we don't really do the whole communication and talking of, you know, about the relationship thing in my culture. Well, the good news is that's not your culture anymore. You have a new culture that you can now add to your old culture, the culture of Christ, which frees you from the limitations of the culture you were handed so you start by asking, is Christ the center of our marriage? And what else could we do to put him more central in our relationship? Then you get to ask of the virtues found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 14, which are my strengths in our marriage? So you're going to start with something a little bit of po a little positive here, right? And it's the compassion, it's kindness, it's humility, it's gentleness, it's patience. You're going to use those. You're going to look at them. You're going to open the Bible right there together. You're going to work through this passage and you're going to say, listen, what works? If you can't come up with anything, just I'll work with you. We'll try to find something uh, that you can find something affirming and something positive in this. Then you ask the more challenging question. Remember, this is you asking it of them. This is not them coming at you. You are asking it because you are investing in your marriage. And what are you going to say? You're going to say, which of these can I improve? Which of these can I improve? In, and can you share some examples? You're inviting the conversation now. You're saying, listen, I know I don't always do great in these things, but I don't always know where I let you down. And I want to talk about it. I want to build that. I want to have that openness, and I want to have that honesty. And I'm willing to hear it, even if it hurts, and even if it bothers me, and even if it makes me feel like I'm a failure, and all that kind of stuff. We're going to do this. And you're going to ask, are there behaviors that cause frustration or resentment in you? Are there behaviors that cause frustration or resentment? What am I doing? that are causing us to be moving away from each other. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to be honest about it. And you're going to take responsibility for your part. You're going to communicate, and you're going to communicate again, and you're going to apologize, and you're, and you're not going to allow the wounds to fester, and you're going to seek, and you're going to grant forgiveness, and you're going to let God show you your resentment, and you're going to address the issues, and you're going to take them head on. You're even going to have to dig for it a little bit. It's not going to be easy. 
You know what it's like, right? I know something is bothering them, right? I know something is bothering my wife. But if I say nothing, it might just go away, <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of the hope. How's that really working for you? Maybe it's time to check in and see if that whole philosophy is actually working. I can assure you that there are better ways of preparing your marriage, building it up, helping it get unstuck, and making certain you're not neglecting it or letting resentment build. Here's the gist, and here's kind of what I want to capture. Displacing self-centeredness with Christ-centeredness gives us the spiritual resources we need to get our marriages moving forward. Get rid of the self-centeredness. Replace it with Christ-centeredness. Let him transform you from the inside out and you will have more spiritual resources than you have ever had. And you will be able to leverage them and deploy them in your marriage and you will get it moving forward. Give your marriage a place to go to get it unstuck. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to lead us into a time of communion. But before they, as they do that, I just wanted to, I just want to pray for us and our marriages here. Let me pray. Father, we come and we learn and we get some ideas and we do all that kind of stuff and we're committing ourselves, Lord, to actually working on our marriages in light of your word. And we know that you will bless us because of that. But Father, what we need is for you to do the part that only you can do, that, that you will do the transforming work in our soul, that you will have us shift, Lord, from being the people who relate to you to the people who relate to everything else with you in us. And we have to hope and trust and pray that you will actually do that work in our souls we will find our contentment first and foremost in you. We won't cling and rush after and, and demand something that can't be had in the rest of these relationships, our ultimate joy and satisfaction. We leave that in your hands. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the discipline and the drive, uh, the diligence, the courage that we need to put our marriages front and center in our pursuit of you that we would let our marriages grow and shine your love and your light. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.